Mark 1, 14 through 20. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. A few weeks ago, we started a new sermon series through the Gospel of Mark. And what I love about the Gospel of Mark, one of the things I love is that the author, John Mark, he just kind of gets right to the point to tell us who the real Jesus is. He gets right to the point. It's the shortest gospel, and he just gets right to the point on who the real Jesus is. Raw Jesus, unfiltered Jesus. He shows us how the real Jesus is really better than the assumptions that we tend to make about him. And so this is our third week in the Gospel of Mark, and this morning we're going to unpack Jesus' first recorded words. And uh, we're going to see that that he says uh, two things. One, he calls us to believe, uh, and secondly, he calls us to follow him. And throughout the rest of the Gospel of Mark, we're going to learn what it means to believe and what it means to follow him. And so he gives this call to his disciples. He calls them to follow him. And so this morning, we're going to look at four things uh, regarding that call. We're going to look at first the context of that call. Uh, Secondly, the character of the call. Third, the community of the call. And fourth, the cost of the call. Let's look at that first one, the context of the call. So right after Jesus calls these men to follow him, or right before he, he calls them to follow him, he actually makes an announcement to them. And that's our context. Read verse 14 and 15 with me. It says, now after John, that's John the Baptist, after John was arrested, which when we read that, we're kind of thinking like, what, what? we just got to know John, right? Like, I feel like we just got to know John, but again, Mark is all about getting right to the point of who Jesus is. And so he says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So there's our context for the call to to follow Jesus. Why should you follow him? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. You see, that's the context. The reason we should follow Jesus, the reason he calls these disciples to follow him, is based on the fact that the kingdom of God is at hand. So, what is the kingdom? What is the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom? Well, first... The gospel of the kingdom is good news. That's what gospel means. Gospel means good news. You see, back then, that word, that word gospel, the Greek euangelion, had this rich meaning to it. A rich meaning. It actually originally had sort of this this military 
context tied to it. Not, not, it wasn't actually a religious word. The word gospel, the Greek euangelion, wasn't a religious word. It was primarily like this, this military word. So if there was like this massive dark army sort of descending on your city, and you would send your own army out ahead to, to go fight them and defeat them before they got to you, if your army won out there, what they would do is they would send a messenger back into town who would get up on a box in a town square and deliver this message called the Evangelion, the good news that victory had been won. That we're not going to die, we're going to live. And that's the kind of news that we're talking about here. You see, I, 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 uh, I started a college as a journalism major, and um, we'd have these discussions in class about the difference between hard news and soft news. You guys familiar with that? Hard news and soft news. So hard news is basically news that is like history-making. History-making news, life-shaping news. News that everyone needs to know because it bears weight on our lives, on all our lives. It changes everything. Soft news is like movie reviews, gossip columns, news that has no real consequence because it doesn't bear any real weight on our lives in any meaningful way. I saw this headline last week about the, the upcoming wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle and it said, the Spice Girls may reunite for the royal wedding. I would consider that soft news. Right? Now, if you're like a girl who grew up in the 90s, like my little sister, you might say, like, hey, Spice Girl reunion? That's good news. That's great news. But as great as that news you might think it is, however great you think it is, that's still soft news. It's soft news, not hard news, because it doesn't hold any real weight on your existence. Even your adult self would have to admit that, you know, Spice Girl reunion doesn't have any real weight any on your existence. Only hard news was called that Greek word, euangelion. Only hard news was called gospel back then. And so here's Jesus, his first recorded words in the gospel of Mark. He says, the gospel is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the gospel. So what is the, the hard news. What is the good news that Jesus was preaching about? Uh, look, at, look at verse 14 again with me. Uh, it says halfway through that Jesus, he came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So that's the good news. The good news Jesus is talking about is that the kingdom of God is at hand. That's our hard news. That's the news that bears weight on our existence, on our lives. The kingdom of God is at hand. So what is the kingdom of God, right? Kind of begs the question, what's so great about the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? If you go back to the first chapters of the Bible in the Old Testament, Genesis 1 through 3, we see that we were actually made to live in a world that was perfect. A world that was perfect, beautiful, flourishing with, with life, flourishing with beauty. No suffering, no sickness, no death, no depression or heartache or loneliness, no murder, oppression or abuse. And all of our relationships were perfect and whole back then in the first couple chapters of the Bible. 
All our relationships were perfect. They were whole. Our relationship with ourselves, with others, and with God and His creation was perfect and whole. Then in Genesis 3, we decided that we wanted to be in charge, to be our own kings, to be our own lords, our own gods. And in that rebellion, what theologians call the fall, the fall of humanity, our relationship with God, with others, and with ourselves, ourselves start to, start to crumble away. You see, our plan back then to build a self-made kingdom for ourselves with us on the throne and God on the margins proved to be a total failure. And at that point, the whole fabric of creation just started to corrode. And we have sickness, we have suffering, we have death, we have disaster. All those things came into existence. And from that point on, all of creation, all of humanity and creation itself groans, as the Apostle Paul says. That's why we, we have this sense that something's not right in the world. It's, we have this longing for things to be made right, this longing for that good life again, the yearning for things to be made new. And so all throughout the Old Testament, the prophets would foretell about a king that would come to usher in a new kingdom, a king that would come to defeat the forces of darkness, who would usher in a new kingdom, who would usher in a better kingdom. At one point, all the people thought that David was that king, but then the prophets told of a king who would be even greater than David, a king who would restore that good life in the garden, who would make all things new. But he'd also be a king who would defeat death itself, lay death in its own coffin, who would forgive our sins, make us holy, bring us back to God. He wouldn't just deliver us from a kingdom of darkness. He would bring with him the kingdom of light the very kingdom of God. And so when Jesus says the time is fulfilled, he's saying now is the time. Now it begins. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And when we see those words, we learn that Jesus is that king. He's the one we yearn for. The one they longed for. You see, salvation isn't so much about us going to heaven than it is about heaven coming down to earth. That's why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. The kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus says. It's come down from the heavens into human history through the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And so Jesus, he's a new king. He's a better king ushering in a new kingdom and a better kingdom. That is the context of his call. That is the context of his invitation to follow him. He's saying, follow me into this kingdom. Now let's look at the character of his call. Point two, the character of the call. Read verses 16 through 17 with me. He says, passing along the Sea of Galilee... He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, I want you to notice the character, the, the sort of nature of the call here. 
I want us to see how unexpected this is, how subversive what Jesus is doing is. You see, Jesus just made a history-making announcement. He just made a history-altering announcement. The kingdom of God is at hand, he said. He's proclaiming this. And what does he do next? Does he wield a sword? Does he, does he wield a scepter? Does he summon an army? No, he takes a stroll by the sea. I want you to press into these verses and see how profound that is. Jesus, the Son of God who came to bring the very kingdom of God, he takes a stroll and calls common laborers into his mission, into the mission of the kingdom. You see, this is one of those places where really we see that Jesus is better than the assumptions that we make about who he should be. We think the kingdom of God should come in a certain way, right? With a certain amount of flair, certain amount of fanfare, certain amount of, of, of kind of umph to it, right? That's what we would expect. But Jesus doesn't even start his ministry in the great city of Jerusalem. He goes out to this humble sea town of Galilee. He doesn't recruit the noblest of men. He calls common fishermen. These dudes were considered like cultural nobodies in their day. You might be sitting here this morning thinking, why would Jesus want anything to do with me? Why would Jesus want me? I'm just a nobody. I've got nothing to offer. But that's the gospel. That's how grace works. That's the gospel of God's grace. You see, in the kingdom of God, we're all on the same playing field. We, every single one of us, no matter where you're coming from, has nothing to offer this king. Regardless of your race, your social status, the color of your skin, your upbringing, Romans 5 says that every one of us is born an enemy of God. Ephesians 2 says that we all come into this world dead in our trespasses and sins. And we continue to walk in those trespasses and sins until we encounter the grace of God. You see, we have nothing to offer Christ the King except our need for His grace. Our need is enemies to be reconciled to Him. Our need is spiritually dead people to be brought to new life. And what we see in these verses is that there's no taking part in this kingdom unless the king comes to you. There's no taking part in this kingdom unless the king comes to you. Jesus is the one who calls out with the invitation, follow me. Follow me. Be my disciple. Follow me to new life. Follow me into the kingdom of God. You see, I don't want us to miss this point this morning. Like what, I don't want you to miss what Jesus is doing here. It, like what he's doing with, with these Jewish fishermen was completely and utterly unique in Jewish tradition. Because rabbis and teachers would never choose their pupils. It was actually the other way around. Pupils chose their rabbis. They'd have these lines of, of guys following them around asking, Teacher, teach me. Rabbi, I want to follow you. And what shocks us about Jesus, the truest teacher, the truest rabbi, the truest prophet, the king, what shocks us about Jesus is that he is the one who initiates relationship. He's the one who calls. 
He's the one who came, took a stroll, and called out to these common fishermen. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, God is the one who initiates salvation. God is the one who initiates the call. Even while we were sinners, even while we were in cosmic rebellion against God, Christ died for our sins. You see, Jesus, the kind of king he is, is the kind of God he is, the kind of savior he is, is he doesn't wait for us to work our way up to holy ground. He stoops down to us. He came out to them on the Sea of Galilee. In Jesus, the glory and the holiness of God is no longer confined and contained to the center of a temple. Now, because the time is fulfilled, it breaks out everywhere. God goes out to the margins in Jesus Christ. The king breaks into human history, into the lives of these common fishermen, and invites them, calls them, beckons them to be a part of history. The character and nature of the call is grace, amazing grace. That leads us into our next point. What is the community of the call? The community of the call. In verse 17, Jesus calls two brothers to follow him, and then in verse 20, he calls two other brothers to do the same. Jesus invites them to be a part of history together. He invites them to be a part of his mission together. He invites them to be a part of the kingdom together in community with one another and with him. And look, this flies in the face of our like Western individualism and consumerism. Some of us, we like to talk about Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior. Jesus is my homeboy, right? Me and Jesus rolling together too deep. You say like, no, I don't need a church community, right? Like Jesus to you is just a, the, your personal therapist, almost like a personal guru. But this kind of Christianity, a Christianity without community is foreign to the scriptures. You don't see that anywhere in the scriptures. I was talking to this guy at the coffee shop the other day, and he said his, his favorite thing about his church is that he, he said that his favorite thing is that he can just stream the messages on his laptop from his couch at home, and he says, I don't even have to be around people. That's like saying, my favorite thing about this breakfast burrito is that it does not have potatoes. If you don't have potatoes in your breakfast burrito, then you're doing it wrong, right? <laughs> you need to repent of that nonsense. In the same way, if you're doing Christianity without other people, you need to repent of that nonsense. You're doing it wrong. This is a team sport. Why do you think Christians for the last 2,000 years have been gathering on Sundays for worship, right? Like our worship doesn't revolve around some, some temple or shrine in our living rooms. We actually go, leave our homes. We gather in the community on the Lord's Day on Sunday for worship. Why do we do that? It's because we were saved into a community, this is why the author of Hebrews tells us not to neglect meeting together and as a congregation. 
He says, don't neglect meeting together. You don't just come on Sundays for yourself. You come here for each other. You come here for each other to encourage one another. That's why we pray together. That's why we learn together. That's why we sing with one voice together. The scriptures tell us that the Sunday gathering of the church is a gift to us. It's a gift that reminds us when we're together that we're part of something, that I'm a part of something bigger than me. I'm a part of something that's a community. It's a group thing. It's a team thing. It's a historic thing. The church isn't some place that you go to. It's a community, a family that you belong to where you love one another. You bear one another's burdens. You celebrate with one another. You weep with one another. All of those one another's are the commands that we have throughout the New Testament. Now that gets kind of cliched like in Christian churches, but if you're, you're new to this, you need to know that most of the commands in the New Testament have this phrase, one another attached to it. Because this is a community thing. This is a family thing. We follow Jesus the King together. And it's not just Sundays. It's not just a Sunday gathering, like we get built up and refreshed as a community, as a family on Sundays, but this community that we share should spill out into the rest of the week as we meet in home groups or for community dinners or just hanging out, praying with each other, encouraging each other, serving one another. You see, the good news of the kingdom is meant to be heard meant to be obeyed and lived out in community. If you remove yourself from the community of Jesus, then you've removed yourself from the historic context, the biblical context of what it means to truly follow Him. Following Jesus is about walking in the ways of Jesus as citizens of His kingdom together. So that's the community of the call. Fourth and last, I want us to look at the cost of the call. The cost of the call, look at verse 17. Jesus now, he says to them, he says to these fishermen, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he, Jesus, called to them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat and with the hired servants, and they followed him. They followed Jesus Christ. You see, there is a cost to following Jesus. Right? Like we'll never shy away from that. There's a very real cost to following Jesus. And we see it illustrated here in this text. Jesus says to them, follow me, walk with me, know me, be my disciple, and I will make you into fishers of men. I'm going to make you into something that you're not. They were fishers of fish. He's going to make them fishers of men. What is he doing? He's inviting them into the work of the new kingdom. And how do they respond to this call? These new disciples, they left it all to follow Jesus. Now, this is important. The point here is not that you need to quit your job, that you need to leave your family like these fishermen did. That was a unique call for them, because a new, unique way of answering the call, because you see, these were the apostles who would travel around the region and become the first church planters. That was unique to them. But what it is about is it is about giving up your old identity 
to follow him. And so for us, it's not so much about giving up your career as it is about giving up the claim that your career has on your life. It's not so much about giving up your relationships, it's about giving up the claim that any person, any place, or anything has on your life. If you ever say, you know, I'll follow Jesus if, then whatever's on the other side of that if is your real Lord. That's your real master. The Jesus is not this vending machine that we just kind of, you know, push the right buttons and then, you know, we'll, we'll follow him if he gives us these things in return. David Henderson, this Presbyterian pastor in uh, Indiana, he, he unpacks this point in, in one of his uh, books. It's a book on preaching called Culture uh, Shift. And he says, it's a great temptation for us to make Christianity attractive to seekers by misrepresenting the faith as a relationship through Christ with a God who is basically a divine vending machine in the sky, there to meet my every need. Unhappy, unattractive, unsuccessful, unmarried, unfulfilled. Just come to Christ and He'll give you everything you ask for. But we forget that God is not primarily in the business of meeting needs. When we make Him out to be, we squeeze Him out of His rightful place at the center of our lives, and then we put ourselves in His place. You see, when Jesus stands at center stage, when he stands at center stage in our hearts, in our lives, in our church, when we submit to his authority in every area of life, in our thoughts, in our marriages, in our work, in our friendships, in every dimension, then the question moves from how will God make me happy to what has God called me to do in this area of my life? You see, if you're a citizen of the kingdom, then following Jesus, knowing him, and making him known becomes your new and primary identity. Let that sink in. Look, let that sink in. When it, when it sinks in that you were made to know the glory of God and participate in that, it changes everything. When you let it sink in that you were made to know the glory of God, made to know the love of Christ, made to know the power of the kingdom, then everything changes. You are not mainly made to be a parent or a spouse or a teacher or an artist or a manager. You were made to know and enjoy the glory of God and to make that glory known. And when that sinks in, it changes everything. Following him, you start to see, is about getting swept up into his grand story. A better story than the one you were already living. Where all our goals, all our plans, all our dreams get absorbed into his message, his story, his kingdom, and his mission in the world. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to become fishers of men to give your life for the cause of the gospel, to know Jesus, to delight in Him, and to make Him known. This is the life that King Jesus has called us into. You see, it's not begrudging that we call Him. It's where we find true life, where we find a real, historic, and eternal mission, a new identity in the kingdom, a new mission to walk in. You see, maybe this mission 
Maybe when you hear that, becoming a fisherman, like knowing Jesus and making him known, maybe this mission sounds too big and too lofty for you. Maybe you feel like, you know, this, this mission, if I try to do that, I'll just, it'll, it'll crush me. But the kingdom life of following Jesus, the Son of God, will not crush you. The reason he came was so that on the cross, he would be crushed for you. His mission won't crush you. He was crushed for you. Through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, through his hope, Jesus secured a renewed life for you, adopted you into a new family, he, where he keeps you with his love, and he empowers you for this mission. His power at work in and through you. It's a call from death to new life. It's a call from meaning, meaninglessness to true purpose. It's available to rebellious sinners like me and like you. Simon Peter, he was a complete tool, always saying and always doing the wrong thing. He's always saying and doing the wrong thing. James and John, later on, they would be arguing about which one of them was greater in the kingdom rather than concerning themselves with their role in the work of the kingdom. But don't miss this. God calls people in need of grace to be his instruments of transforming grace in the world. That's what's crazy about the gospel. That's what's crazy about the kingdom. That's what's crazy about the call, the wonder of it. That God beckons broken people to be his instruments of transformation and renewal in the world. You see, the wonder of God's grace isn't about what that grace is able to work in us, but whom God in his grace commissions to do his work. And when we get that, you see, that puts King Jesus at the center of the story, where he belongs. The disciples aren't guys who were called because of who they are. They were called because of who Jesus is. That's the point of the gospel. He's a great and gracious God. You see, in the kingdom, there's no room for pride. There's no room for boasting. Because the gospel of the kingdom is not about our adequacy. It's about Christ's sufficiency. And look, Jesus doesn't scan the sea and pick the four noblest examples of faithfulness and then say, follow me. These guys, they're common guys. They're confused. They're lost. They're broken. Deadness and lostness is still in their hearts, and yet they rise and they follow Jesus. They follow King Jesus. And in their following, in their walking in his ways, the world is changed forever. The reason that we're worshiping in a new young church plant in Rancho Santa Margarita, California, is because God empowered in his grace these vessels of grace to make disciples that make disciples, to plant churches that plant churches. This is the call. It's a call to new life, a call to a new kingdom. It's a call to a new Mission where Jesus says, follow me and see what I can do in you and through you. It'll cost you 
your whole life and your whole identity. It'll be worth it. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.